Welcome to the Week 16 edition of Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. This is Rich Savini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. Another loss on Sunday for the Jets, 34, 31-24 to Miami. The kind of game I thought we'd be seeing a lot of this season, meaning a tough, scrappy effort, competitive for 60 minutes, but in the end, just not talented enough to pull it out. Unfortunately for the Jets, and you, the fans, there have been too many blowouts this year and not enough of these Miami-type games. We'll get into it a little bit, and we'll look ahead to the Sunday showdown, saying that somewhat sarcastically, the Jets are hosting the Jaguars, a game with serious draft implications and a rare matchup between rookie quarterbacks drafted one and two. We're talking about, of course, Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson. So a lot of stuff on our menu in this episode, but first... Our guest this week is SNY Jets reporter Janae Coakley, who does a great job with the team. You see us together on the SNY Sunday pregame show, and it's all long overdue that we have her on flight deck, so I'm looking forward to that. But to kick this off, I want to look ahead, because right now that's a whole lot more appealing than looking back, right? So in keeping with the holiday Christmas theme, let's compile a Christmas list for the Jets a list of needs, positional needs. It'll be based in priority order. And this is what I see as the Jets list. So this is not a Samini list. This is what I think the Jets will be uh, prioritizing in the offseason. Number one, they need a run-stuffing defensive tackle. They have Quinn and Williams, but it's not enough. Clearly, the run defense has collapsed in recent weeks. On Sunday, they turned Duke Johnson into Jim Brown. Now, how does that happen? Four of the five top snap leaders on the defensive line were backups one of them Nathan Shepard played 41 snaps in the game and didn't record a single tackle Foley Fadakasi is a solid run stuffer but he didn't play because he was on the COVID list he's going to be a free agent they could bring him back for about eight million a year or they could try to upgrade you know they need a kick-ass guy in the middle of that defense and that's a big priority also They need a legitimate number one wide receiver. Corey Davis is not it. He's a complimentary piece who drops the ball on occasion. Elijah Moore has big-time potential, and I think he'll be back for the final two games, by the way. But what about his ceiling? I'm not sure. Is he a one? Maybe, but you don't often see a 5'10 receiver in that role. There are a couple of options in free agency, but Alabama's Jamison Williams will look mighty tempting one of those first-round picks. They need two safeties, a center field type who can be the post-safety in Robert Sala's cover-three scheme, and they need a thumper who can come down in the box and tackle. We have to emphasize tackling because the Jets don't do that very well. Ashton Davis is not a good tackler. You saw it again on Sunday, and that's kind of a big deal for a safety. Elijah Riley, thank goodness he's okay after that scary injury. He's a tough kid who just oozes intangibles, but he's probably best suited to a backup role. There are some interesting free uh, safeties in free agency, Jesse Bates and Marcus Williams. The name in the draft, of course, is Notre Dame's Kyle Hamilton. He's the complete package. Now, would I draft a safety in the top 10? Yes, with that second first-round pick. McShay, in his latest mock, has them taking Derek Stingley and Hamilton. Know this. No team has ever used two top 10 picks on DBs in the same draft. Next on my Christmas list, edge rusher. Every team needs an edge rusher, right? Some more than others. 
The Jets already have a lot of money invested in that position with Carl Lawson and JFM. And it's a shame that Lawson blew out Achilles. I talked to him recently, and he's really upbeat about his rehab, and I'm sure he'll be back for 2022. But he's going to, will he have that same burst off the edge? It might take some time before he gets back to normal. JFM, quite frankly, has not produced consistently. I could see him sliding inside. He has the body type to be an interior player. There are two blue-chip edge rushers in this draft, Aiden Hutchinson of Michigan and Kayvon Thibodeau of Oregon. If the Jets are picking in the top two, it would be very hard to pass on either one of those guys. Next one on my Christmas list, a lockdown corner with ball skills. Now, why isn't this higher on the list? You're probably wondering. Well, personally, I'd put it higher, but I think Salah feels he can develop second-tier corners and have them play at a first-tier level in his system. You saw it with last year's draft. You know, they waited until the fifth round to address what everyone thought was a major need. Now, he really likes Bryce Hall and Brandon Eccles. Personally, I like Hall as a number two corner, and I don't want to dump on Eccles after his pick six on Sunday, but I think I think he's more of a two-slash-three. The secondary really is screaming out for a playmaker on the perimeter. There's a lot to like about Hall's game, but he doesn't intercept the football. Now, LSU's Derek Stingley will be the name linked to the Jets. Also, New England's J.C. Jackson will be a free agent, but my sources are telling me that he's likely to get the franchise tag from New England, if not a new deal entirely. Another need, tight end. I like Ryan Griffin's game. I think he's an underrated player, but Zach Wilson could really use someone who can stretch the seam of a defense. The Jets are 31st in receiving yards by tight ends. It's hard to find those good ones. It really is. You know, there's a handful of good ones in this draft, maybe not in round one, but they could find someone on the second and third day. Next on my list, an offensive tackle. Joe Douglas has poured a lot of resources into the offensive line, and he needs to keep pouring. How much depends on their confidence in Mekhi Becton, who played 40 snaps in the opener and hasn't played since and is probably done for the year. Do I think the organization has some concerns about his durability? Yes. Enough to cast him aside? No. He's still an immense talent, and I also know this. Salah is a fan of George Fant and Morgan Moses. Now, Moses is a free agent, and my hunch is he'll probably move on. Fant is under contract for one more year, and I don't think he's going anywhere. There are some good tackles in the draft with Alabama's Evan Neal and Mississippi State Charles Cross potential top 10 picks. It'll be a fascinating decision if one of them is available. I suppose they could move Becton to right tackle where he would be a powerful strong side run blocker. Last on my Christmas list, a linebacker. They whiffed on Jared Davis, but they found a sleeper in Quincy Williams, so we'll call it a wash. I think C.J. Mosley is a good player in the middle. He's not worth $16 million guaranteed, which is what he's due next year. That is a massive salary for an in- inside linebacker. It probably means he's not going anywhere. It's hard to think any team would trade for that amount of money. But they need some good outside linebackers, some run-and-hit guys who can play in space. There are two real good ones in the draft, N'Kobe Dean from Georgia and Devin Lloyd from Utah. I've seen Lloyd play. He's really good. Now, I don't know if I'd pick an off-ball linebacker in the top 10, but it's definitely a need. And there you have it, my Christmas list for the Jets. 
Happy shopping. We're joined now by the award-winning reporter from SNY. She covers the Jets, been doing it for a while. And before that, she was in Indianapolis uh, doing TV from 06 to 2010. And before that, her career started out in Billings, Montana, covering some rodeo and over to Yuma, Arizona, before heading over to Indy and then to New York. We're so happy to have her. I actually should have done this a long time ago, having Janae on, but uh, thanks so much, Janae, for taking the time. Oh my God. Thank you, Rich. And you were just saving the best for last. I mean, come That's, on. Exactly. We're building Holiday up here towards the end of the season here. You know, we're previewing this big Jets Jaguars game. We got to get like a, a, a big guest. <laughs> so, uh, so you joined, you came on the jet beat with SNY in 2010, which is like, they almost go to the Super Bowl. You know, it was a great year. They make it to the championship game. I, you're probably thinking this is this is phenomenal. I'm, I'm walking into like a, a potential dynasty here. What are your memories, uh, fondest memories of that first year? Um, like you said, and I was in Indianapolis before, so don't forget I was covering the Indianapolis Colts with Peyton Manning. My first year in Indianapolis, they go to the Super Bowl and win. So in my last year, I was there four years. My fourth season in Indianapolis, they go to the Super Bowl and lose. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm coming to the Jets, Rex Ryan. This is their second straight year to the AFC Championship game. This is awesome. Like, how lucky am I to be able to cover great football in my career to start off? Well, as you know, Rich, that was the best year I got to cover. But it was awesome. You had Rex Ryan. You know what it was like? Rex Ryan going to the AFC Championship. Mark Sanchez. I mean, this team, the ground and pound. Every time he turned around, he had a soundbite, you know, Rex Ryan. And then I started high. And I haven't hit that pinnacle yet. (laughs) Rex, for a television reporter, a journalist, Rex must have been the ideal coach because you knew there was a soundbite coming, right? Oh, it was fantastic. And keep in mind, I came from Indianapolis with Tony Dungy, who was a phenomenal coach and phenomenal person, but very quiet, very matter of fact, didn't give you a bite, didn't give you, I mean, didn't give you, you know, wasn't exciting. And then you come to Rex, who's dressing up like his brother, who was, you know, I'm going to kiss Belichick's rings. I mean, every single day, you're like, I like, is this for real? Like, welcome to New York, Janae. And Rex Ryan is like putting like a cherry on top. Yeah, you couldn't think of two more polar opposites than Tony Jungji, who is a very religious man who does not curse. No. And Rex, and Rex Ryan, who is the exact opposite, who, you know, as we saw in Hard Knocks, he does curse. So that that was interesting. And also Peyton, you know, what was it like being around Peyton Manning and that sort of Peyton type culture? It was crazy. And then you have to add in Bill Polian to that mix. Right, right. You had Bill Polian, Tony Dungy, and then Peyton Manning. It was interesting to me because here I am in Indianapolis, a small town. Indianapolis Colts dominated. Peyton Manning dominated. I have never seen someone work so hard at his craft. He was the first guy in, the last guy out. He had notebooks. Like I have my little notebook. Mm-hmm. Rich, he would have these notebooks. And I, um, Tony Dungy, I think, told this story to me once. He had these notebooks. After every single game, he would take notes and write it all down after every single game. And then like Jim Sorge, his backup quarterback, then used to work at Wish TV with us. He would have to go through like, say, okay, we're playing the Jets, Rex Ryan and the Jets. Jim Sorge would have to go back to when the Colts played Baltimore Rex and see everything. He was just so meticulous. And these notebooks went out of stock, like they were done being made. They had to, the Indianapolis Colts had to order every like every last one of them so paint could have the same notebook so he could write every note detail in. like he was so meticulous and Peyton knew everybody everything like he had like he ran that team like oh. an iron fist and it was someone joked once that he could never have been eli in new york 
because he wouldn't have had the control over the market. Like mm. he went to Indianapolis and that's where he fit because he knew he could control what he had to do. Interesting. And, and you know, instead of covering a team in New York. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, he's a control freak. I mean, but yes. he's a, he's a hall of famer, you know, control. Yeah, freak. It works for him, obviously. And it and works. He found the perfect, perfect fit for him. And he knew that. Yeah. yeah it worked awesome out. Covering I mean, they average like 12 or 13 wins a year. They go to the Super Bowl. You come to New York, you cover the jets, they go to the AFC championship game. And we know what happened then. This is the 11th straight year out of the playoffs. Uh, What's it like as a journalist, as a TV journalist in the market, covering a team that's just losing year after year? It's hard because you're always by this time of year, Rich, you're trying to figure, as you know, we're trying to figure out what do you say? What can you talk about? What can you what do the fans want to hear? But I also think it makes you a better journalist because it's easy covering a team that wins all the time. I mean, it's always happy and go lucky and you get what? Like I said, the worst team I covered in Indianapolis, they were 10 and six and they won the Super Bowl that year. I mean, fans were about ready to like lose it with them before they made it to the playoffs and went on a Super Bowl run because they lost six games that year. I mean, if the Jets win six games, we're excited. I mean, that's yeah. the opposite. But it makes you a better journalist because, again, after every game, you have to find things to talk about. You have to, you know, figure out storylines. You have to. And it's not as if these guys want to go out and lose. I mean, that's right. the part that drives me crazy. Like, you think these guys want to go get their butts spanked? Do you think they want to not be in the playoffs the 11th straight year? Like, they're out there trying and working. So you have to tell that story and figure it out. But it's hard, as you know. I mean, I've only got 11 years. How many years do you have under your belt, my friend? This, this is the times three. Mine is 33. So, uh, yeah, I think one of the misconceptions is people think like we want the Jets to lose. And that's really not the case because it makes our lives so much easier when they're winning. They're in better moods, you know, and more people are tuning in. Cover. Yeah, more people are tuning into your show during the week. Uh, more team, they're turning into our pregame show that we do, you know, and then, you know, more people are reading my stories when they win. So yeah. we don't root for them to lose. No, exactly. And, as, and again, and you don't want to write the bad stuff. Like you want to talk about teams that win. You want to talk about the good stuff because there's a lot of great guys on this team that yeah, have a lot of great stories. And unfortunately they get lost in the shuffle because you have to talk about, you know, the state of the team. Yeah. Well, one thing you do really well, win or lose, is that you have a way of getting good info and revealing information out of the people you interview. And the, like this one little anecdote always sticks in my head. And you, you're going to laugh because it, it's a very small thing. But to me, it was really cool. You you found out that Chris Herndon was born with 12 fingers. Do you remember that story you did a few <laughs> years do, ago? I do. And yeah. I ended up, you know, like coattailing that. I did a story on, on your story. And I just thought that was so interesting that you, you get those little little nuggets out of people. How do you do that? Like, what's the trick? I, that's funny. You remember that because um, I actually, I, remember, I just remember asking Chris Herndon, I'm like, what's something people don't really know about you? And he, I'm like, oh, okay. I had no clue that you had 12. I just, to be honest with you, Rich, it's just me being curious. Like, mm. I just love asking questions. I love getting to know, like with you, I'll just, I find out so many nuggets about you, which I think is fascinating, which I'm going to interview you in a minute because mm. I think your fans want to hear about you and your stories. It's just me being curious and wanting to know about people and just in general, like, so Rich, your son's in law school, your daughter's out in California. Like you have some amazing stories, your relationship with Bill Belichick. Like I want to know that stuff. So I just ask it. Yeah. So I think it's just me being curious and not overthinking it too much. And when I first came here, Rich, I'll be honest with you. I was a nervous wreck because I didn't have the credential. Here I am in New York, the biggest media market. Mm -hmm. I have to keep up with, you know, the Joneses. I have to have all these notes, but I learned 
throughout my career that I don't have to be like you. I don't have to be like, you know, cause or I could, I have my own way. And like, I want to find out these questions. So that's what I do. And you just kind of learn that as you go with the beat. Like I'm confident in my situation of being me and who I am being authentic and true to what I want to know. So you're saying that the New York market's a little different from covering rodeo in Billings, Montana. There's, there's, I mean, a just, just a little, just, just a little. little. Um, but you still can ask the same questions. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's kind of what I learned to be honest with you. Someone's like, going to win and someone's going to lose. I mean, that's the exactly. Same. And y'all, and everybody feels the same way, whether you're losing at the rodeo or senior Olympics, when I mean senior Olympics, I mean like the 90 year olds in Yuma, Arizona, yeah. Yeah. like the New York jets losing a game, you know, on Sunday. Yeah. Journalism is journalism, no matter who you're interviewing. Um, yes. So, yes. So tell me some of your, you've been doing it with the jets for like 11 years. Tell me some of your favorite personality, some of the players and coaches that you would say are among your favorites to have, to have covered over the years. Oh my gosh. Well, but you know me every single time I'm done, I'm like, Oh my God, he's my favorite. Oh my gosh. He's my favorite. Um, Todd Bowles, I think is like one of my favorite guys just because he was so genuine, but again, you have Rex, who's fantastic mm-hmm. too, but like Todd was just so genuine. Like I just, who he was on the field and off the field, like that's who he was. I love Todd covering him for players. Oh my gosh. There's such so many lists. We had Mike DeVito and Sione. Like those yeah, like top five. They're just awesome. I mean, good people. Yeah. Who cannot like Bart Scott just because of his mouth? And now you see Bart all the time. All the yeah. time. All the yeah. time. We're always joking. Um, I love Demarius Thomas. He was only with the Jets for one year, but he, oh. made, he made such an impact, as yeah. you know, on us. Um, tough question. Um, Foley, I, I adore Foley's fun. Snacks yeah. fun for me. I enjoyed snacks. But yeah. see, it's funny because I get a different relationship with the guys mm-hmm. because I get to do more, you know, we do more one-on-ones in situations where you have to, you don't necessarily get that access. Yeah. You've been, you've done like at home stories, exactly. you know, guys away from the building, which is always great. I mean, it's just, it's perfect for TV because you can catch a guy in his natural setting. Exactly. And, yeah. and then you get to meet their mothers, their wives, their kids. When you see them around them, it's a whole different ball game. So that's what I enjoy. Yeah. I think one of the best stories you did, you went down to Florida with Robbie Anderson and you did that story with, uh, you know, with his mom in the car and, you know, you got all that. Robbie Anderson is another one of my favorites. He was hilarious. Um, Who have you, who's been your favorite? Because I love a lot of the, um, the legends. I got uh, Joe Klecko, Marty Lyons, Wes Walker, Bruce Harper. I mean, I could blame ton. Ken O'Brien, Altoon. Like I've got to meet all these guys and I adore them. Yeah. I mean, I had Ken O'Brien on the podcast last week. It's, it's great. I mean, and I only knew him very little because I was just starting and he was toward the end of his career. So I didn't know him that well. I wasn't one of his guys back then. And, uh, but he, he's treated me, uh, amazingly well, uh, recently. And so I have a bunch of guys. I mean, Curtis Martin's one of my all time favorites, uh, just a classy guy. I mean, Vinny Testaverde, Boomer Esiason, uh, you know, Marvin Jones, you know, I still keep up and, t- you know, Marvin all the time. And so I, I could give you a long favorite though, Rich. Oh, that's a tough one. Janae. Uh, I don't know. You know, it's, that's a tough one. Like you mean covering or as a person, like See, that's just it. There's two different aspects, right? Yeah. There's two different aspects. I mean, like Marvin Jones and I are pretty close now. We keep in touch a lot. He's a really, really good guy. And I, he's, he's trying to make it as a coach and a, like indoor. His so son I'm, is unbelievable. His son is going to Georgia. Uh, you know what? It makes me feel old. Last week, all the former Jets 
with their sons signing their letters of intent to go to college, like Chad Pennington's son going to Marshall, Anthony Beck's going to Iowa State. Oof. And you Marvin, covered all of them, right? I covered them when they came in as 21 and 22 year olds. And now there's, you know, their sons are 21 and 22 and or 18 and 19 going off to college. So that that's a little weird. I got to admit, that's it's like a full circle thing that I could probably do without. But, you know, like you said, there are very few uh, jerks that I've covered over the years. Now, there's there's been a few. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I almost got into a fight with Jeff Criswell and Dave Cadigan many years ago. Uh, a fight that would have lasted two seconds because I, I, I would have been right. Just, you would have won, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, not quite. Uh, yeah, that would have been a TKO in, in less than five seconds. But you know, so there's always a few every year, you know, that you just kind of want to stay away from. But most, for the most part, ninety nine percent of the players have been outstanding to deal with. Um, so what do you? So let's let's fast forward it to current Jets. What are your early impressions of Robert Sala? I like him. I, I think he. I mean, come on. Anybody who's coming in is going to be a tough situation. It's I know they don't like to say rebuilding, but they're rebuilding. You have to build a foundation and start from this. I think, I mean, he has the energy for New York. Yeah. He has the passion. He has the optimism because I think you have to be optimistic in order to come into a situation like this. And right. play. I mean, he's the forever optimist, but sometimes like, all right, come on, coach. Is that really how you feel? Like, right. Um, I think they got a young group of guys. I mean, look at that secondary all year long. We were like, Oh, they need the veteran, they need the veteran, but they're doing a good job. And again, we talk about these guys. I mean, every time I get done interviewing one of these new guys, I'm like, Oh, he's great. Oh my gosh. He's fantastic. What a great guy. I mean, you hope it translates in the next couple of years into talent and into, but I think right now they're doing it the right way. And I hope, and I know Jets fans don't like to hear this, including yourself and me and you You gotta be patient. You can't Rome wasn't built overnight. And again, as you know, I'm married and live with a coach. I know what it does takes to build the team. You can't just do it overnight. And you yeah. can't know what fans are yelling and screaming at you about. Yeah, I, I think you make a good point about Sala. And, you know, we could always pick out little things like well, the defense, you know, but his personality, I think, is conducive to the position he's in. Yeah. Because, as you know, from being around this team, there's so much negativity around the team. And just the media coverage, the losing, the fans. You need someone with a strong, positive personality. And I think other than Rex, who was like, you know, a very positive, upbeat guy. I mean, I haven't come across as anyone is, you know, he's like a glass half full guy, Sala. So yes. I, I think he, you need that in this situation. And no matter what. And again, I, the other day I was like, all right, what is he going to say after this game? I don't even remember what game it was. And he did. He finds the positive. And I think that when you talk to the guys, you know, off camera, off camera, off he does talk like that in locker rooms, in the meeting rooms. Like he does make them believe that, okay, yeah, we look like crap today, mm-hmm. but we were able to build off of this discipline. Yeah. So I think guys are buying into it and believing in it and have that optimistic and positivity. He, he's very good at messaging through the media. Like for instance, on Monday, he, you know, Zach had kind of an up and down game on Sunday against Miami, but you know, he was very, so positive. He's a very good salesman. He knows how to present a, a point of view and get it across. He was just gushing about Zach on his uh, Zoom call on Monday. And he's very good at that, at connecting with the media and then the fans. And so that's an important part of his job, you know, it whether is, people want to realize. Long, but it can only last so long, especially in New York. Right. You it's, know, you, eventually you got to win. And, yes. and, next, and next year, there'll be more pressure on it. So you mentioned your husband, a coach. I, I don't know. I, I'm sure most of the you know listeners know this, but if not, I'm going to fill you in. You know, uh, Janae is married to Scott Burrell, 
who is the Southern Connecticut State basketball coach, but of course, more famously, uh, is a UConn legend, a, literally a Hall of Famer at UConn basketball and played in the NBA for nine years, you know, starting out with the Bulls, the Michael Jordan Bulls, which were featured on The Last Dance. And so I'm wondering, you know, you're sitting down to watch The Last Dance with all of America. You know, everyone watched that documentary. It was great. So, and Scott was such a big part of it. You know, he was like the new rookie who got picked on by Michael a lot. Like, what, what was that like sitting in your living room watching that with Scott? Well, truth be told, I have actually, I had actually, when Scott and I first started dated, dating, I had actually seen some clips. He has a DVD. I mean, do the kids know what DVDs are anymore? Um, he had had a clip that was that they had given to him like years ago. So we had watched it. So, I mean, Scott kind of knew his role in the video, like the guy that Michael, quote unquote, bullied and picked on. Um, but again, like Scott said, I was playing with Michael Jordan. Like, how yeah. cool is that? Like, he wanted to make me better. And everybody, I remember once somebody after we were watching it, um, you know, Scott was the party boy and the baby Rodman or whatever. And they're like, yeah. oh my gosh, today must I'm like, I was in high school when this was going on. Like, <laughs> If you're like on the Chicago Bulls, a single young man playing for this team, you better be a rock star, gosh darn it, because you better enjoy that moment in your life. But yeah. Scott was like, I was, the funny thing is, is like, I was so scared and so worried about not messing up and learning these plays and like playing. There was, I didn't go out that much. Like that's the mm-hmm. irony. Like I just wanted to be the best I could be for Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that must've been so cool watching that with Scott. And, and I think, uh, uh, they've maintained a relationship, right? I mean, you yeah, know, they golf a lot. I'll, can I tell I have Michael Jordan's number in my phone. That's how cool I am. Short story. Got turned 50 last year, did a video for him. I had all the little players and teammates and, and, you know, family wish him happy birthday. And of course I needed to have the goat, you know, wish him happy birthday. So um, Scott's good friend with Ray Allen. So I was going through Ray and then Ray didn't have time. I'm like, you know what? Michael Jordan is Scott's on his resume is one of his um, like references. Hands, references. Yeah. So I'm like, I have Michael Jordan's number. What's the worst that can happen? Mm-hmm. So Rich put his number in, texted him like, Hey, Michael, Janae Burrell doing the response. Responded back two minutes later. I literally like, threw my phone after I sent it. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so nervous. Michael Jordan <laughs> texted me back two seconds later. Anything for Scotty? What do you need? Yeah. He sent me a really nice message from two skies. Like, and then I was like, thank you so much. Happy holidays. Cause it was last year at this time. And he wrote back, thank you for including me. And I'm like, you're Michael Effin Jordan. Like what? And then like, he's the only person that introduced himself on the videos. Like, Hey, Scotty B it's Michael Jordan here. I'm like, really? Really? As if he Um, needed the intro. Exactly. And they'll text back and forth and they golf a lot. Like, like Scott will say, if Michael didn't like me, I wouldn't have been in the video. Like, exactly. I I mean, Michael was in control and Scott's like, I shouldn't have had that kind of role in that piece. I was just a little, you know, guy from off the streets, you know, the sixth man off the bench. Like I wasn't even that good, you know, that much of a key part to that championship. So when you and Scott go out in public, like in New York, you know, you're, you're a television celebrity in New York. No, you know, you're, you're a lot. Who, get, who gets recognized first? You or Scott, if you go out to dinner in Manhattan or something like that. Probably our kid because we're screaming at him. Um, <laughs> if we're in Connecticut, like, I'm not going to lie, Scott is like royalty here because Burrell, the past, you know, UConn. I mean, you went to Syracuse. I'm sure you know the battles UConn. Oh, I, I know. I know. Syracuse had. Um yeah. I will lie. No one knows any of us in New York. Come on. 
I will say this though. My, we took my kids to the, uh, uh, to the tree last weekend. And someone was like, J E T S judge, judge, judge. Janae. And I was like, Oh my gosh, someone recognized me. There you go. There you go. So, you know, Scott does stand out. He is six, seven. So, yeah. right. So yeah. I think he's six, seven. Um, well, I think he's, he's six, eight, but maybe shrinking to six, seven. Yeah. He, that's what happens. When people you always like, will be like, who's that? Who's that? Yeah. Well, like, that is, that is so cool. And you do a great job. I mean, you, with your kids and, you know, juggling work and kids and everything, it's, it's a little hectic. Well, but but Rich, um, can you tell the viewers know about your kids? My I mean, kids you got, are, you got a at, guy, a kid in law school. I'm an empty nester. Now the kids are out They're uh, yeah, You did a heck of a job getting those kids out. You're like parent goals. Oh, big assist from uh, Mrs. Samini on that one. She did. Uh, she did a great job, but yeah, we're really like, we have, we have two great kids. They're actually home now, which is weird. You know, I got one in Boston, one in Los Angeles. They're both home. So that, that makes it a really good Christmas. And uh, I hope you have a great Christmas, Janae. This was, this Wait, was awesome. Real quick though, Rich, I need you to tell the Bill Belichick story. You've told it to before on air, but I need to hear it. It's an awesome story. The fans love this. Yeah, you know, it is a pretty cool story. So, you know, everybody knows Bill Belichick was the Jets defensive coordinator under Parcells. And back in those days, there were no rule. Uh, assistants were not allowed to talk to the media or rather under Parcells. They were not allowed to talk to the media. And there was no league rule that mandated it in those days. So uh, it was up to the head coach. And so Belichick was off limits. And I was working for the Daily News at the time. and so. My editor wanted a little diagram of a play every Sunday that they could run in the newspaper, the opponent's favorite play. And so I called Belichick. You know, obviously, we had some relationship seeing each other and, you know, talking. I said, Bill, can you do me a favor? Every week, could you give me a play that I could just fax in to the, uh, to the office? And he goes, sure. So because of the restrictions that Parcells created, we had to create, come up with a clandestine way of doing this. So every Thursday night, I'd be the last person in the press room at Hofstra, and I would we had a, we had a system set up. I would call his office, and but I would only ring it once, and then I would hang up, and then he would know that was me and that I was alone in the press room. So he would walk down to the press room, uh, knock on the door, and come in, and he'd have one of those three by five file cards, and he, of course he had that number two pencil behind his ear, which I think it might be the still same pencil that's still there now, and he would diagram me the play and tell me exactly what kind of play it was. And I would send it in and my editors thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is beautiful. You know, this is great. But I didn't tell them where I got it from. It was a secret between me and Bill. I promised not to tell anyone that was 20 something years ago. So I think the statute of limitations is off. I can tell people now, but yeah, that was our system that we had set up. You know, Belichick was so different than the guy you see all the time now, who's like a grouchy guy on, on TV. He was actually very helpful to reporters, especially reporters who were interested in learning about football, which I thought I was at the time. And um, he was great. You know, every every Thursday night he'd come down. Some nights he would just kind of slide it under the door if he was real busy. But uh, most nights he just gave me a nice explanation of what the play was. And so that's that's how we uh, we had such good diagrams in the Daily News. <laughs> that's, that's the coolest story ever. That is awesome. Yeah, yeah. a little uh, clandestine meetings with Bill Belichick. But it, it was fun. It was fun. Times have changed, though. And, uh, you know, so. But, Janae, thank you so much for taking I know you've got a busy, busy day. You've got interviews stacked up today. And uh, we will see, hopefully we'll see you out at Jets this week. If we're allowed out there, I don't know what the uh, status is with COVID protocols, but hopefully we'll see each other. If not, I will see you at the game on Sunday. And thanks so much for doing this. So much fun. Thank you. And hey, check our pregame show out, Rich and I on the field. Or or in 
you know, cubby holes. Yeah, last week was a little uh, a little uh, remote, but this this week hopefully on the field. Awesome! Thank you so much, Rich. It was so much fun. It is Twitter time, and we're starting off with a question by at Alex Dimple. Rich, is Zach Wilson really starting to show growth? I was impressed with the first half on Sunday. Hit every single layup pass, but when the Dolphins adjusted in the second half, he seemed shook. Would you chalk that up to rookie mistakes? Um, yeah, I mean, the Dolphins did adjust. They brought more more man-to-man coverage. They started bringing a linebacker, and I think Wilson was a little slow to recognize some of those blitzes. Hence, you had six sacks, the one strip sack. But I thought he was efficient in the first half, and he's he actually has gone 81 straight passes now without an interception. I think had this been early in the year, he would have gotten picked off a couple of times against Miami. I think he would have forced some throws. So I think he's improved in that area. I think he's seeing the field better, uh, a little more careful with the football. And so that is progress. It's not always visible, and it's certainly not visible on the stat sheet all the time. But I think there's been some subtle signs of growth. At Israel DMS 7, why was it a bad look for Wilson when he brushed off a gotcha question? He isn't worried about specific yards and points per game. He's worried about wins. I've seen all. Uh, I've seen this in multiple media outlets. Make this into a story. You were, of course, referring to uh, my colleague DJ Bienemy of the New York Daily News. Asked Wilson after the game, basically saying, "Look, since you've come back from your injury, the offense has struggled. Why is that?" And Wilson clearly did not like that question. He gave a very short answer, saying he's not worried about that stuff, and he was really kind of glaring at DJ. Uh, I think. And I, to be perfectly honest, I kind of made, I wrote about that. I didn't make it into an entire story, but I thought it was part of the story. I thought it was probably the first sign all year that we saw Wilson, it it touched a nerve. And I think any time a player in a high-profile position, such as quarterback, uh, reveals uh, some sort of emotion publicly, I think it's newsworthy in a story. And I think for the most part, he's done an outstanding job this year of handling all the scrutiny that comes his way. I think that was one moment. And it wasn't a gotcha question. It was a it was a very good question. I would disagree with you on that. I think it was the first time all year, you know, maybe he showed a little bit, you know, like I said, that it touched a nerve. Next question at Draped in Yellow. Please break down the issues with the run defense. Uh, well, as you allude to, you know, bad tackling is one of the reasons. The Jets have given up 26 rushing touchdowns this year, which is the most in the league. But And, and you're going to think I'm a little crazy. But when you look at all the different metrics, their run defense is not as bad as people make it out to be. I think we think of it as like the worst in the league. It's not. There's a stat called defensive rush success. You know, how many rushing uh, how many successful plays they have against runs and they're 19th in that category yards before carry they're 22nd yards after contact they're 21st so you see the pattern here they're in that 19 to 21 range that's not great you know it's not what you want to be but it's not as bad as people make it out to be you know you're talking about a smaller faster defensive front that is at its best when it's playing with the lead and optimal down and distance situations. Now, the problem with the Jets is they're playing from behind so much that teams are running on them a lot, and they're just not built that way to hold up to the run 
down after down. And so that's just more of a scheme thing. But overall, defensively, it's got to be better tackling, a better understanding of the defense, uh, better scouting ahead of time, you know, being prepared for unscouted looks. That all comes with learning the system. At Boy Green 25 asks about free agency. Can you do a priority ranking of the Jets' free agents? Well, I think the guys who are the priority are probably Foley Fadakasi and Braxton Berrios because they're going into their second contracts. That is always a priority for Joe Douglas. Uh, the big name, of course, is Marcus May. I think he'll probably move on, although I wouldn't rule out a one-year prove-it deal after the draft before training camp. Got to give him a chance to rehab that Achilles. I think LaMarcus Joyner, also out for the year with a torn tricep, I think he could fall into that category as well, a one-year type prove-it deal. Um, bottom line is I think probably they'll have two new safeties. Guys who didn't work out, I think uh, Keelan Cole, Dan Feeney, Jared Davis, and Tyler Croft, all one-year guys out of free agency. I think they'll probably move on. Post-draft options, I think Tevin Coleman, Morgan Moses, and LDT uh, could be one-year post-draft options for the Jets. Possibly Joe Flacco in that, and we'll get into that in a little bit in a second. And then the guy who I think is really interesting is, is Jamison Crowder. He's obviously a good slot receiver. Uh, he was signed by the previous regime. Not so sure this regime values him as much. So I think they're going to let the market dictate that one, and my hunch is that he'll probably move on. At S. Williams 8, if the Jets were to bring Mike White back next season, would they be guaranteed a quarterback controversy? Um, no, I don't think so. I think the fans have a different view of the quarterback situation than the decision makers do at the Jets. I think the gap between Wilson and White is larger than the fan base thinks. The Jets see Mike White as a backup quarterback. They do not see him as a threat to Zach Wilson. So it'll only be a controversy if they let it become one. Uh, next year white restricted free agent my hunch is they'd probably give him the low tender which according to over the cap is going to be about 2.4 million if they give him the next highest tender it's 3.9 million now you're starting to talk about some serious money that would be a second round tender i don't think they'll go that high i'd be surprised if they do i think it'd be more uh the 2.5 neighborhood and my last question from sports Underscore FI3ND, a personal question. What's your favorite Christmas memory involving the Jets in your career? Well, unfortunately, because the Jets usually are playing meaningless games at Christmas time, there aren't many positive memories. Um, of course, you have to think back to Christmas Eve 10 years ago, the Victor Cruz 99-yard touchdown for the Giants, basically eliminating the Jets from the playoffs. That was a memory. Uh, Christmas Eve 1994, Another really a bad memory for a different reason. Last game of the year in Houston, I remember the Jets gathering the beat writers in the press box before the game at the old Astrodome and telling us that their GM, Dick Steinberg, had been diagnosed with stomach cancer. Uh, a tragic news, of course. And it turned out, you know, a few months later, Dick passed away. A sad story. Uh, I'll end on a positive Christmas memory in 1992, only a few weeks after Dennis Bird broke his neck and was temporarily paralyzed. The Jets players uh, made a video, a personalized video, each player with an individual message that they made and it sent over to Dennis Bird in the hospital. I got a chance to see that video. It was very emotional. It was uplifting, inspirational. It was really, really cool. And they sent that along on Christmas Eve to Dennis Bird. 
And so I'll end on that, an uplifting moment on Christmas Eve. They don't happen that often with the Jets, but there you go, a Dennis Bird memory. Let's wrap it up with a little preview of a very rare quarterback matchup. Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson. It's only the fourth time in the common draft era that rookie quarterbacks drafted one and two have faced each other in their rookie season. And the interesting thing about this one is it's so late in the year. The first three were early. 1993, Drew Bledsoe and Rick Meyer. Meyer wins the game. That was week three. 1998, Peyton Manning against Ryan Leaf. That was week five. Manning won that game. And the last time it happened was 2015, Jameis Winston, Marcus Mariota. That was week one, and Mariota won. So we're doing this late in the year with uh, Wilson and Lawrence. And so now, you know, these are a couple of quarterbacks who came in with such huge expectations, but now we see the bruises. You know, both guys are bruised up. They're battered. Lawrence is 28th in, in QBR in the league. Wilson is 31st out of 31. It's just a reminder, folks, of the NFL system and the way it works. You know, good quarterbacks go to bad teams, and they're put in very, very difficult situations. In Lawrence's case, a dysfunctional team with the whole Urban Meyer disaster, you have to feel sorry for him. I still think he's going to be a really good quarterback. The Jets aren't dysfunctional. They're just a bad team. And so it's been a very difficult transition for Zach Wilson. I still think both guys have a lot of promise. As for this game, this is an interesting game. The Jets had been an underdog in 26 straight games. They are the favorite this week. A couple of points over Jacksonville. The last time they were favored was week four of last season against Denver at home, which, of course, they lost. I'm predicting a Jets win this week. It'll be ugly, but the Jets will win 18-16. to 16. That's my prediction. Kind of an ugly score for an ugly game, and they can't lose this game. That would be their worst loss of the year. You don't want to lose to a team as equally bad in the standings and also a team that's gone through so, so much off-season or off-the-field upheaval. Don't lose to the Jaguars, and I don't think they will. I think it'll be a Jet Christmas present for their fans. It'll hurt their draft position, but I think all things considered, they'd rather have the victory, no doubt about it. Thanks for tuning in this week. I want to thank our guest, Janae Coakley. That was awesome. Our producer, Jeff Scopin, for putting it all together, and we'll talk to you next week on Flight Deck. Flight Deck.